of all the things that we've been learning in the last few weeks, if we've studied the imperatives of Christ. Some of you are continuing this in your small group. Uh, you may be uh, a little bit uh, behind what we've been doing here in the pulpit, and that, that's fine. Uh, I would much rather uh, you get it than whether you did it the same time I talked about it on Sunday. So uh, if, if I had my rathers, I would rather you keep on doing this perpetually until we're doing it, uh, as uh, I want to keep on reviewing it in my own heart and life uh, as a constant uh, review and check of my own heart. Um, sometime, uh, well, at the turn of century, there was a World Fair, and uh, you know that's where all these inventions were being uh, introduced, and in one window, uh, there was a particularly attractive machine with gears uh, and chains, and things were moving, all these moving parts, and it was making sounds, and it had chrome on it. Uh, so it looked attractive. But it, uh, it, it would gather a crowd, because everyone was kind of curious at this World Fair where all these inventions being introduced. But then there was this sign that simply says, this machine does not do anything. <laughs> what a letdown. You've got all these moving parts and, and very attractive and make sounds, but you realize it doesn't do anything. I think that is the danger that we can go into as a follower of Christ unless we look hard and fast at what the scripture actually says, what Jesus says. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? In fact, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples. And this is uh, one of the ways you're going to do it is by teaching, teaching people to observe whatever I commanded you. So we're not just teaching what Jesus taught. We're teaching people to obey what Jesus taught. And that's a big difference, isn't it? Uh, it's a big difference in my life. I can know a lot of stuff, but what matters is essentially what do I do with what Jesus taught? And so that's the idea. And in John chapter 15, it is uh, the, the true vine passage from verses 1 through 17 is probably the most concentrated passage that seems to capture all of what we have talked, uh, talked about the last number of weeks. In fact, we've already preached or uh, taught on this time. But I want to focus on verse 8 uh, and use this verse, which was the memory verse for the reproduction imperative where Jesus commands us to reproduce and so it's very simple very short and right uh, to the point and so of this being the words of Jesus Christ I'm going to ask as we stand to read this and I'm going to read verses 7 through 9 uh, just to get the passage before and after this if you abide in me and my words abide in you Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You may be seated. In way of review, for some of you who've missed some of the week's there are three or four distinctives 
of the commands of Christ. There's actually uh, close to or over 300 commands of Jesus uh, where you see in the text where it's imperative mood, a command. Uh, and so what we've done is simply generalized these commands uh, to uh, distinctives uh, and categories. And so the main categories include giving up. Jesus has commanded us to give up, and in that are the specific commands of surrender and sacrifice and listening. We're to listen to Jesus and what he has to say, and so we've talked about that, and we've learned a little bit about what that means. And so for us to be a follower of Jesus, we have to do this. It is a command of Jesus. We have to surrender. We have to sacrifice. We have to listen. And chances are, when you look at your life, of all the experiences you've gone through where you knew God was talking and working in your life, chances are it was probably connected to one of these things. Was he teaching you to sacrifice, teaching you to surrender? Was he teaching you to listen? And if it wasn't those three, it was probably the next three, which is categorized by giving in, giving in. And so that is abiding in Jesus, which is very much the theme of John 15, the fruit and abiding. Uh, then there's obeying. Uh, and then there is the light to let the light of Christ shine in us so that we will shine light out. And this has to do with our character uh, representing Jesus Christ. And so this is uh, the giving in, knowing that we're not just giving up without God, through the Holy Spirit, working in us something. And this is where we see this being done, the abiding, the obeying, and the light of Christ. And then this takes us to the giving out. The giving out. This is, and I've talked about that a lot of times when we think about being a believer, we go here. We go to love, we go to serving, and we go to sharing. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, we think, well, we love people. And, and rightfully, Jesus said in John 15, this is how people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. And then we go to serving. Uh, we think, well, a Christian ought to serve people. And then we go to share, and we talk about what Jesus has done. But the danger we have is that we run here without listening, surrendering, sacrificing, obeying, abiding in, and letting the light of Christ shine. We cannot love and serve and share if we're not doing the surrendering and listening and sacrificing and, and letting ourselves be a branch dependent on a vine of Jesus Christ. So, if you find there are failings in the loving and serving and the sharing, it, it might be wise for us to go back and say, okay, where has the sap of the Holy Spirit been blocked? Am I dwelling and abiding in Jesus Christ? Or am I seeking some other comfort that I need to sacrifice and surrender? All right? Or, or maybe there's a step I'm not obeying. Jesus has told me something clearly to do, and I'm not listening. I'm not, or I am listening, and I'm not obeying. You see why this is so important? It is your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, as those who worship God, is dependent on understanding, knowing, and doing these commands. Uh, and so that gives us to the last distinctive, reproducing. Reproducing. Uh, there are no subpoints here. It's pretty simple. Either 
there is reproduction happening, uh, there's not. We understand that biologically, don't we? It's, it's, not, it's not a mystery. Uh, we know when we're reproducing, all right? It's pretty clear uh, that happens in, in plant life, happens in human life. And what are we reproducing? We're reproducing disciples, all right? This goes all the way back to Genesis in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, when Jesus says, I want you, I've made you in my image, and I want you to reproduce and fill the earth, what does he want you to reproduce? He wants you to re- reproduce the image of God. Now, Genesis 3 introduced a major kink and uh, that we sinned, and thus marred God's image. But we're still made in his image and in the capacity to be more like Christ. So when Jesus Christ comes into our life and we let the Holy Spirit work in us, we are being redeemed, restored back to how God intended us to be. You get that? We, We are being redeemed, bought back, fixed, and made right. All right? So the problem is, is that we we've got the biological reproduction down, but we hadn't got the spiritual reproduction. And so now we are reproducing marred images of God. And that's why nations have problems. That's why families, we don't have to go far, do we? Families have problems uh, because we've got the biological reproduction and we need to pray and ask God to do the spiritual reproduction in our families as well. Uh, and so um, that takes us to uh, John fifteen eight, 8, uh, when he simply says, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And so let's look first at life's greatest purpose. Life's greatest purpose simply is to glorify God. This is given to us over and over again throughout Scripture. We do not have to wonder too much about the question, why am I here? Now, if we don't regard the Bible as God's word, then that question is going to puzzle us. Why am I here? Because, honestly, nature doesn't give us enough information to tell us about why we're here. It gives us the idea that there is God and that he's powerful, but it doesn't give us enough information about why I'm here. My reason isn't enough to tell me why I'm here. I need something outside of myself, and that's where the Word of God comes in. That's where Jesus comes in and tells us this. Now, um, there are various passages that speak to this. One of them is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 through 14, where uh, Solomon is exploring life and in investigating and studying. And at the end of his account, in Ecclesiastes says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of men. And here's why. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He says, you know, consider this, that when all is said and done, the only thing that matters is God because he is the final judge. And so, therefore, we want to make sure that we are living a life acceptable to the final judge. That's the chief end of all things. I, I, uh, you know, I had a a pastor who was supervisor over quite a few folks and staff, and he gave me this, this tip. And uh, I think there's some wisdom to it, but he would share this with his, his staff. He, he would say this. He says, I have enough people who don't like me for free. I'm not paying you to not like me. 
Now think about that. I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense. There's a, and now consider this God. God is the final supervisor, isn't he? There's enough people that don't like God for free. He is not purchasing you, buying you, and sending his son to die for you, for you to continue in your life without regarding God. And he is the final judge. And so if, you know, if you're going to work for an employer, you're gonna, you, you need to like that one. Because he's not, he or she's not paying you to not like them. So consider this with God, though. This is even bigger. God is the final judge. And so Psalmist says, I'm observing all this, and I'm realizing that it's all about fearing him. So Jesus said it this way, Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40, when he's asked, what is the most important thing that we do? What is the greatest command of the law? And simply saying, Jesus says, if you don't do anything else in your life, make sure you do this. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and second is like to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's how Jesus said it. It's about glorifying God through fear, reverence of him, and flat out love. You love him with all of who you are. And so that is why we exist. Now, Jesus went on and said it in Matthew 16. He says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is coming, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Same thing that, he's, that Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. There's going to be a day when I will judge. Therefore... Make sure your soul is about me. Don't trade out your soul for stuff that won't last. Live for Jesus. All right, that, that's the idea. I shared with you some years ago about a, um, research that is used and employed in studying windshields of airplanes. And I've shared this some time ago, but one of the things they would do uh, is they would fire off dead turkeys. Miss Judy, <laughs> dead turkeys, dead birds at these windshields to see if they will last. Because it would be a bad thing to be up in the air and hit a bird as they do and the windshield breaks. And I thought, well, what a terrible existence for a bird. But at least there's some redeeming value. They're, they're used for the saving of lives. You know, I'm 39, and I've heard said this is the time when some people get introspective and start asking themselves, what is the point of their life? And they start asking, what's on my bucket list? And let, me, let me make sure I do whatever is on my bucket that, that, that The bucket list is that thing, you know, that before you die, you want to make sure you do before you die. And people start asking themselves, am I really doing whatever I wanted to do when I had the youthful dreams, visions of value and importance in my life? Let me just say for a believer, a bucket list is really irrelevant. Why is that the case? The bucket list only matters to people who think that all that is is here on this earth. 
So I better make sure I get this done because I've got just a little bit while and then there'll be no more. Believers don't believe that, do they? Do they? Don't, don't believers believe that Jesus has given eternal life, that there is a quality of living, that even when your heart stops beating, it doesn't stop that life? And that, in fact, instead of it diminishing when physical life ends, it enhances, it gets better, because we are removed from the body of sin. Is, isn't that what we believe? So therefore, whether I, I, I see the Grand Canyon or I, I fly on a hot air balloon or I jump from an airplane really is a little bit irrelevant because all these things of excitement and adrenaline rushes or beauty are just shadows that point to Jesus Christ and I'm going to get the real thing when I die. Isn't that, isn't that what we believe? Just, just want to make sure. All right, and so, so for the 39-year-old, 49, 59, 69, you go, it doesn't matter, whatever the age, when we are reevaluating our life, what we really need to be looking at is not as what my bucket list is, but what is God's bucket list for my life? And Jesus said God's bucket list is that you love him with all that you are, that you glorify God with your life. Now, how does that happen? Well, there are various ways that this happened, uh, but as we read in John 15, 8, he gives us a very clear way. He says, by this, my Father is glorified. By, by what? That you bear much fruit. How do you glorify God? You bear much fruit. So, life's greatest purpose is to glorify God by producing life's greatest produce. And that is to bear much fruit. This answers the question, what do I do with my life? Now that I know why I'm here, what do I do with my life? And this does uh, speak into the, the midlife crisis that can happen. I, I've got to ask myself, am I bearing much fruit? And are, are disciples being made? Is love coming out? Is light being shown? Am I making a difference for Christ's sake? with my life? That should be a question we ask ourselves, not whether or not, hey, did I really want a convertible before I die? Or did I, do I really need to be in that sports car before I die? Uh, that's debatable, okay? Uh, but what's not debatable, according to Jesus, is are there disciples being made by your life? Is fruit being accomplished? So uh, at, the, at the focus is, is what do we do? And sometimes we get confused because we think, you know, glorifying God, is that done by, uh, by songs, uh, by reading books, writing books? It can be. Uh, is it done by your money? It, it can be. Is it done by hairstyle, body shape, diet choice, uh, sexual ethics, head knowledge, by tattoos or not tattoos? And we get, I mean, <laughs> every once in a while I, I come across someone that has a, a um, you know, a, a spiritual sounding tattoo. Uh, on their, their, you know, cross or uh, solo de gloria or, you know, we've got all these different tattoos. That's, all right. I, I think God made your skin beautiful as it is, but that's another issue. But the, the real point I'm trying to get to uh, is that when he's saying to glorify God, it's not done by tattoos. It's done by, are there disciples that are being reproduced? Is there fruit coming from your life that is eternal in nature? That's how it's done. 
And so that's what he brings out here. In verse 2, he says, Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. God has holy ambitions for your life, not just a few pieces of fruit, but to constantly engineer in your life circumstances and relationships so that you are forced to rely on the sap of God, His Spirit, His Word, His love, His joy. Alright? The sap is His Spirit, His love, His joy, His Word. Where do I get that? Because in John 15, Jesus interchanges abiding with me with abiding in His joy, abiding in His love, and abiding in His Word. Okay? So, For us to depend on his love, his joy, his word. He will engineer life so that you will draw upon that more than your money, more than your body, more than your clothes, more than your relationships, more than the potential of your your physical resources. He will cause you to draw upon that more. Why? Because he wants more fruit. No, he wants much fruit. And so that is life's uh, that's his, his work is producing much fruit. Now, as we keep on reading, verse 4, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. It is repeated over and over and over again. Now, here's the encouraging thing. In John 15, verse 16, Notice what it says there. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. I don't know what that does to you, but one of the things that it does is to me is that it encourages me. Have you ever gone to your tool chest and pick out and which tool is going to work for the job? You're looking for certain qualities. Or you, you may go to your kitchen and say, which appliance do I need? Or which kitchen utensil do I need to get the job done? What this is saying is that God has chosen you, selected you. You have certain personality, experiences, quirks even, failings even, that God is going to use to bear much fruit. You know, one of the things that's amazing to me is that as you look over, you will see that often it is the failings of your life that gets redeemed by God and he uses it. One of the things that Satan will want us to do and then our flesh will tell us to do, whatever the failings we have in life, let's shut them out, let's cover it up. We don't want to use those. We don't want to make those known because they're embarrassing to us. But you know, it's oftentimes that weakness that God's grace comes in and makes perfect that he uses to bear fruit. Chances are, if you're going to be bearing fruit, you're going to have to focus in on God's grace moving and changing in your weaknesses. But you'll say, well, pastor, if you do that, then that'll be awfully embarrassing to me. I'll have to share things that I don't really care for anyone to know. Do you know how my image is going to drop if I bring that out? This passage doesn't seem to be really concerned about our image. It seems to be totally concerned about bearing fruit. 
image isn't the same thing. As, I was talking with Rich. He was telling me yesterday about a watermelon vine that he had that looked beautiful. And it was a seedless variety. But what he didn't realize, and I didn't know either, is that you needed a seeded watermelon plant with it for it to cross-pollinate and to produce. And so uh, this seedless watermelon vine was beautiful, lush, growing well, very green, but no watermelons. Image is not the same thing as bearing fruit. So don't be surprised when God used the weaknesses of our life and works through those to produce disciples. Now, if God can do that with our weaknesses, how much more how God's gifted you in his strengths. And so the key is that we abide in him. We've been chosen, selected for this purpose according to John 15, 16. Now, I would just want to warn you that for you to bear fruit, it's probably going to be at the cost of you dying. <laughs> Wait a second. I thought I was supposed to be living to produce fruit. Notice what happens here uh, in John chapter 12, just a little bit before Jesus tells this. In John chapter 12, verse 23 through 24, we've got some, some Gentiles that come to uh, the disciples, and they want to see Jesus. And Jesus kind of gives this cryptic response and basically says, no, I'm not going to see these Gentiles yet. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. In John 15, when Jesus is saying this, he is about to go to the cross. Within a day, within just a few hours, half a day, he is going to be on a cross and he's going to be dying. And so when he talks about bearing much fruit, it is done in the context of you're going to die. You're going to die to yourself. This is where the surrender and the sacrifice really is important here. You are a seed. You are a seed. And that seed can bear gospel fruit if you die. In your work, in your relationships, in your life. Surrender your ambitions and live to the ambitions of Jesus Christ. This is where I was talking about how sometimes we don't have time to mow the grass with someone else. We, I, we don't have time to visit someone else that's in our neighborhood, but do we have time to make disciples? And sometimes we got to understand that we have to surrender some of the things we want to do because ultimately when it's said and done, we're about making disciples, about bearing fruit. So we keep on reading here. We are about the greatest purpose. Glorify God. It's done by producing life's greatest produce, bearing much fruit, thus showing life's greatest proof that we are a disciple. This answers the question, how do you know when you're a disciple of Christ? How do you know when you're, I mean, if you're involved in discipling someone, if you have children, how do you know when you're finished? Is it by a thorough knowledge of the Word of God? That's good. But don't you know there are very many folks that know the Word of God, but they are anti-God? Satan knows the Word of God. He quoted it to Jesus. 
It's a little bit more to it than that, isn't it? Is it, is it by spending X amount of time in prayer? Is that how you know when someone's thoroughly discipled? Are they go to church and they have a habit of attending and being a part of God's family? Is that? The world knows that's not the case, don't they? It, how do we know? Well, what Jesus is saying here is you prove that you're my disciples by bearing much fruit. Now, what does that fruit like? The fruit looks like, it looks like love. It looks like uh, speaking righteousness. It looks like living Christ-likeness. Uh, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit in our life. But it certainly does also look like others who come and become disciples of Christ, that they too are making disciples of Christ. One of the most thorough outward measurement, and every outward measurement is going to be limited, but so far the best one I've come across is simply this. You know that you're a disciple of Christ when the ones that you're discipling are discipling someone else for Christ. So when the Lord comes back, the question that challenged my heart is how many of our disciples will be making disciples when the Lord comes back? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've spent 39 years and 9 months <laughs> going to church, and it really wasn't until last year I ever heard that. You may have heard that before me. But if you've kind of followed the same circles I've been in, chances are you may not have ever heard that before. That challenged me to the core and refocused what we're to be about. And that, that's one of the things, in, in the end of March, I brought this challenge to our church. Let us make a goal, let us make a vision of seeing discipleship communities that will reproduce all throughout Nightdale and East Raleigh to the third generation. Lord willing, we're going to have one meeting tonight for the first time in Churchill Downs with, with a, uh, two couples. Lord willing, pray for it. That God would put within it the seed of reproduction. But that's what we want to be about. Why? Because of John 15, 8. It's proof. This is camp season. And so we had one of our children at camp and, and involved her going and dropped off in the morning and picking up late at night. And so one of the things that happened when we picked up our daughter is they wanted to know, what is proof that she belongs to you? <laughs> Sometimes a little tricky for me because they don't look like me, you know. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I can tell you my history if you believe me. But what, what they were looking for was a driver's license. Are you who you say you are? And the thought was, is if you went through the DMV process, they've got a photo, then that ought to be enough. This child evidently belongs to you because it's been certified that this child belongs to Jared Scott. Are you Jared Scott? It was my driver's license. So what Jesus is saying is, how do, how do you know that you're a disciple? It is the, the ID that we make fruit, or fruits produced in us. Now, the tricky thing about this is that we hear this and we think, okay, production, production. What's the formula for production? Uh, what's step one, step two, step three, step four? Okay, let's make sure we got a good assembly going in our life. Let's work on making fruit. The thing is that if you're not careful, you're going to miss this. Jesus is saying, what you do is abide. 
you abide. God bears fruit through the abiding branch. All right? Abiding branch. And that takes us back to the point of, okay, well, what does that mean to abide in Christ? Abiding in his word, abiding in his love, abiding in his joy. Do those three factors shape who you are? Does it frame the attitude of our days? Does it focus the thoughts of our life? Does it fuel relationships? And so that takes us to the next point. As we read this, life's greatest purpose is to glorify God. This is done by, pro- by producing the life's greatest produce that's bearing much fruit, which is showing the life's greatest proof that we are a disciple, but it's fueled by the life's greatest provision, and that is sharing the Father's love. Verse 9 blows me away. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Is it, I mean... It, it would have been enough amazing for Jesus just to say, I love you. Consider how I've been counter to God my entire life. Not regarding God, regarding my own intents and purposes. It would have been amazing for God to say, I have mercy on you. I'm not going to wipe you from the face of the earth. He doesn't stop there, but he says, I love you. But then he goes and says, with the love, the same love that the Father and the Son has shared with one another, he invites you in that eternal party. That blows my mind. The same way eternity blows my mind, to think how can anything exist without time? I I can't figure that out. How is it that something's going to last forever? I can't, my mind just frizzles out on those simple questions and then to imagine that in that span of eternity the father and the son have always been in love with one another never separated never bored with one another and the exception is that one time in eternity where jesus said i will bear the sins of jared and the world and then he says that same measure of love i share with you and that answers the simple question Does anyone love me? Does anyone love me? Am I worth dying for? Am I beautiful enough? Am I man enough? It gets right to the heart of those questions with every little girl primping and wondering who that man's going to be that marries then says to her, you're beautiful enough. It's not going to be done by a husband. It's done by Jesus. Jesus says, you are beautiful enough with every little boy wondering from their daddy, am I man enough? Am I tough enough? And Jesus says, you are man enough. I die for you. And I choose you to be used in this world. <laughs> Life's greatest provision. Now, the question that remains for the rest of us, for the rest of our life, is will that be enough is it enough that the father love for his son is shared with you will that give you joy for the rest of eternity and here's what satan and the flesh says No. 
Remember Eve? Adam, perfect in love, no sin. What does Satan do? Satan says, that's not enough. Don't you want to be wise like God? If you just eat this fruit, yeah, okay, God did, God said no, but you can't trust God. He doesn't really looking out for your best. If, if you can want to be wise, love wasn't enough for Adam and Eve. And we are born into that same nature and tendency that says to God, enough. I need to have love and a million dollars. I need to have love and this job. I need to have love and this wife, this husband, this, and, and, and we just keep on listing it out. Life's greatest provision, and we just got to ask, is that enough? But I will tell you, it's more than this world can give you. What the Heavenly Father gives to us. So, he says, okay, abide in that love. What does that mean? It's not just to say, God loves me. Oh, that's good. It is to say, my sense of worth is now fueled by God's love. I no longer have to invent and create and devise and labor various methods for me to have significance in life. Okay? It's fundamental. What does it mean to abide in his word? Like John 15, 7 says, abide in my word. It's not, that's not just making sure I read the Bible three minutes and I check it off my list. Your hope is built on the Word of God. You see, Jesus says to abide in me is very much abiding in His words, His truths, His promises, His commands. To say these commands that we've looked at, surrendering, sacrifice, and listening, and obeying, these things will form the fabric of my existence. It's what I go to. It's what I turn to. It's not just memorizing some verses. It is going to these verses and depending on them, abiding in his joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. See, here's the thing. Jesus said, when, when, when you look at this vine and branch still, I'm giving you something that no one can take away from you. You could go in assisted living. You could go to all timers. You know, you can go where everything seems to be stripped away. You're, even your very memories are taken from you. And you know that happens, don't you? We don't have to go far. We all know someone where even the very memories are taken from you. Your faculties are taken from you. What hope does that individual have? And we look at them. And we see them, and we see what they once were, and we're heartbroken. Friends, I'm going to tell you, God doesn't see the same thing you see. He sees a soul that he loves, and he's working through, and God has purposes there. And the beautiful thing is that though his memories have taken away, no one has taken away the love of God in their life. If that's the case, then Romans 8 doesn't mean a thing anymore. And that's why believers, believers go to the Alzheimer's units and we sing to them. And we teach them and we care for them. And believers ought to be the ones who wash them. When everyone else in the world says, they're just a drain on society. Believers don't believe that. 
Because we're fueled by the joy of the Lord. When we see babies that are just not even born, and we think, well, they can't do anything yet. They, don't, they can't even talk yet. They can't even live apart from the mother. God sees them, and his love goes to them. And the believers are the one who says, you know what? These people who society says has no value, we say they have no value because God sees them and gives his love to them. We separate ourselves from the world because of love and sacrifice and surrendering. And we're fueled by a different drumbeat. The joy of the Lord, the love of the world, the love of the Lord, the word of the Lord. I've shared this story with you before. It comes from the book, The Sanity of God by Nick Ripkin. But it, it so captures what we're talking about here. And it's a powerful story. I don't mind telling it twice. <laughs> about a man named Dmitry in prison in Russia, former Soviet Union. He is involved in starting churches um, against orders of the government. Essentially, he does get arrested and not only does he get arrested, he gets removed thousands of kilometers away from his family and from any society of believers. He gets taken to a cold cell, foul, and all that you could imagine to be, with just an open toilet, nothing else. And he is there among 1,500 hardened criminals. According to his testimony... He said that the isolation from the body of Christ was more difficult than even the physical torture. Isn't that something? A little strange to us, doesn't it? When sometimes we choose willingly to be isolated. But for 17 years, he's in prison. His mom, or his wife, his children, they grow up without him for 17 years. He says there's two disciplines that carries him through in those days. One was taught by his father. Every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed. He would face the east, raise his arms and praise to God, and then he would sing a heart song to Jesus. He would worship him. This is part of the abiding in the love of God. Now you can imagine 1,500 hardened criminals up early in the morning at sunrise, someone singing. Yes, the reaction was as you would imagine it to be. Laughter, cursing, jeers, banging metal cups against the bars, throwing food, and sometimes even human waste to shut them up. It was the light shining, and the darkness did not like it. For 17 years, every morning, and then there was another discipline. He would come across any type of scrap paper, and there was a, a kind of a, a pillar, a, a cold cement pillar that was there, and it was always damp. And so he would take a piece of paper and fill that little scrap with Scripture and praises to God and would plaster it up on that pillar. When it was cold, it was just a sheet of ice, and he would place it up there. And when the guards would come in, they would see this, and they would beat him. Anytime they saw this praise offering to God. This happened continuously 
they had him to believe that his wife and kids uh, have been killed and, that the, and the kids have been uh, taken by the state and that they have no faith and that his home was ruined and his trying to demoralize him. And he finally got to the point where he believed it and he, uh, they were trying to get him to write a confession that he was not a follower of Jesus Christ and that he was a, a tool for the, of the West uh, to undermine the government. And they were constantly, and finally he got to the point where he was so broken he said, okay, tomorrow I will sign. That night, as he was wrestling in prayer, at the same time, his wife and kids had a special burden, and they prayed for their husband, their dad. And through a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, as Demetri was praying, he could hear the voices of his wife and kids praying for him. He woke up the next morning and said to the guards, you lied to me. I will not sign this paper. I'm not signing anything. The guards could not believe it. They thought he was finally beaten and destroyed. And they asked what happened. He said, God let me know that my wife is alive. You could not stop it. One day, he said, I came across a special gift. God allowed me to find a whole sheet of paper and a writing utensil right beside me. He filled it with front, back, top to the bottom with every scripture, word of God that he could think of. Every praise, it was just filled as his mind recounted. And he rejoiced in being able to give this praise to God. And the guards came in, they were infuriated and beat him, and beat him, and said, we are going to kill you, and they threatened him with execution. So he's dragged from his cell, and as he's dragged down the corridor of the center of the prison, the strangest thing happened in that prison. Before they reached the courtyard, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention, and they all sang that same heart song to God. The guards could not believe. And they stepped back, terrified of this man whose influence led 1,500 hardened criminals to sin. And they asked him, who are you? He said, I'm the son of a living God, and Jesus is his name. Guards returned to the cell. Sometimes later, He was returned to his family. I look at that story, and you say, what could be done if you were taken to jail, the Bible taken away from you, you were removed from the church, your wife was removed from you, your kids was removed from you, any hope of living a normal life with freedom has been removed from you. All you've got is a cold, cold cell, an open toilet, and 1,500 criminals all around you. And you know what you've got? You've got the commands of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the good news is that abiding in Christ does not demand you to be sitting here in America. Somehow, through that, God was glorified. 
by this man bearing much fruit. What's our reason for not bearing fruit? When it's all said and done, what it comes down to is that we don't want to follow God. Many times, that's what it comes down to. If that is the case, life is going to be dismal. And when it's all said and done, you cannot regard the things of the world and regard God at the same time. If you regard the things of the world, you and I are making enemies of God. One of the things I came to as I was thinking about this this morning is that when I regarded sin, I disregarded God. And the reality check is that whatever it is I'm sinning about is going to be removed someday. And all that remains is God. And what will it be then when it's just me and God? Right now, Jesus stands in our stead. Will you abide in him? Let's pray.